what are some of these common um, you can say underlying approaches that you can summarize like for example the top five things and maybe the top two or three things that uh, are really uh, exciting in terms of potential like i've been hearing a lot of athletes using cryotherapy hyperbaric oxygen mm-hmm. what is the potential of some of those technologies i think there's great potential there i mean the research is a little bit new in terms of um like sort of red light therapy and some of the light therapies is a little bit preclinical, but cryotherapy, there's definitely benefits, ice baths, cold water submersion, that contrast therapy, there's good evidence on hot, cold, you know, back to back sort of thing. But oftentimes people will go to those sort of um, fancy techniques yeah, and they will miss some of the big impact things like just glycogen reloading. Right. Like we're loading your body with glycogen post-training or post-competition to restore your body so you can fire those muscles again. Right. They miss that aspect. They miss the sleep aspect. Yeah. Right. Deep quality, rejuvenating sleep aspect gets missed. And then you can start looking at inflammatory foods, uh, sorry, anti-inflammatory, curcumin, things like that, that have good research on them that you could add in magnesium, you know, things like that. I would be thinking of sort of those things first as uh, sort of low hanging fruit, easy things you can do and sort of check those off the list and then see where your recovery is. And then you can start adding some of the cold water submersion. Uh, okay. Even sauna has good evidence on research on uh, recovery, right? And kind of put those things in. The red light therapy is quite interesting. I just think there's not enough uh, data there yet to say that it's effective or not. And IV therapy is good too. Intravenous therapy, depending on the athlete. Intravenous is good because you get the 100% absorption. You can put amino acids and electrolytes, some sort of glycogen replenishment in there as well. Yeah, but I think for most people, they need to start with the, the basic pieces. Everyone wants to do the new and fancy technique, right? New and fancy ones first. It's it's funny how the longevity science and the performance science go hand in hand. What what happens in performance gets replicated to longevity uh, and uh, people trying to unlock something faster, but via methods yeah. that are fancier. So as you mentioned, like maybe sleep has... 10x more ROI compared to a session of cryotherapy, but one might yes. go for cryotherapy and sleep less. <laughs> yeah. Yes, 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 yeah. And and we always say to the people we work with, you know, what you're doing in the gym is, you know, that hour you're spending in the gym or the hour you're competing is not where all your improvements come from. It's the 23 hours away from that that you'll get all your adaptations and improvements and add lean muscle mass and improve all these pieces. So. I think there needs to be a a little bit of a mind shift, mindset shift with most athletes because they'll put maximum effort into that one hour and 23 hours, they miss all those opportunities that that's where you actually will improve. Like even on the nutrition side, right? Even nutritionally, you you will improve if you are, you know, putting the right uh, protein, amino acids, carbohydrates in four to six hours post training sessions where you're going to, that's where you actually get your performance improvements. That's a that's a super interesting perspective. Your your day is your improvement spectrum, and not, it's not just that one hour in the gym. And uh, and that's that's really cool because lifestyle probably has the most compounded effect on your health and your performance. Switching a little bit into like more into like the data that you generate when you work with athletes, and uh, when you talk about evidence driven interventions. When you say evidence driven, generally it comes down to markers that you can study. So what would be some of those core markers that have recently caught your attention or something that you find really interesting 
and i would love to also nudge you a little towards like newer biomarkers that are gaining popularity like blood glucose uh, lactate mm-hmm. ketones etc so what would be your perspective there yeah i mean there's so many things to look at you know i'll often look at so many markers with an athlete so i can just get a a big picture of everything in terms of performance or health or or both maybe your top 5 between performance and health yeah um so what one of them that i i like a lot is um SIGA, secretory IGA. So that's your mucus lining production of your gut, which is also the same lining in mouth. So that's a very good indicator for immune function. And you can also tell if if an athlete is maybe overtraining because you'll see some fluctuations on SIGA. Right. I find that's a good marker. Uh, it also gives you a little bit of clues into if they have any issues with certain foods or if they have problems digesting certain foods, it gives you a little bit of an indication there because you'll see a, a spike in the SIGA or, or a drop if it's chronic. Right. I think that's a good one. I think um, IgG antibodies are good, blood antibodies, because then you can yeah. get an idea you know, which foods are cooperating. And there's some good IBS research now showing that these markers are quite uh, uh, helpful in, in figuring out which foods you should be avoiding. Like, should you be avoiding gluten? Should you be avoiding dairy? Should you be avoiding eggs? What are the foods that are causing a negative response for you? Right. Um, that would be probably the second one. I think CRP is always great. C-reactive protein. Yeah. Inflammatory marker, right? Systemic inflammation marker. In terms of new things, I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff on apolipoprotein B. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen yeah. some of the cholesterol marker. That's a good. That's a good sort of relatively new one, just to see what's happening on the cholesterol side and liver side of things. Yeah, the, the lipoprotein one is uh, both interesting and funny at the same time. I think almost every lab that does a blood test actually has the ability to do it, but most of them don't do it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, right? It's even it's even on a lot of the ranges. Like if you look at the breakdown on a on a lipid profile, it'll have it on there, but a lot of people don't run it. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very a very good marker. I think some of the genetic markers are interesting for performance. For example, how well you metabolize caffeine. Got it. I think that's very relevant. Mm. So caffeine mm. is one of the best ergonomic supplements to use, right? Best performance supplements. But if you don't respond well to caffeine, then you shouldn't be using that because that will impact your uh, ability to sleep where you're going to get most of your recovery. Would, would that be more of a genetic marker, metabolite marker, like a microbiome marker uh, in your opinion? Uh, just a pure genetic marker, pure right. genetic marker, right? Yeah. And then, uh, for example, if someone doesn't uh, react well to caffeine, then it's not worth them using the caffeine because then you yeah. can't recover. And if you compete again the next day, oftentimes athletes will say to me, I feel like I can't fall asleep, I'm jittery, I'm anxious, I'm irritable, can't sleep that night because of that, then the next day performance is worse. Got it. So in those cases, then you have to work around, a lot of athletes will have coffee before a competition or game, so those people have, we have to switch. And probably the fifth one I, I think right now might be um, looking at circadian rhythm uh, function. So looking at you know what are cortisol levels doing, what are melatonin levels doing. Because circadian rhythm drives about 80% of how your body operates. So if you're not in sync with sun up, sun down, you're already behind, you're already lacking, right? And I think there's a lot of people with those problems, especially with the artificial light and blue light we're exposed to these days. And then tying in with um, your glucose comment too. Like, so the more that you manipulate cortisol, the less glucose regulation you have, right? Right. Right. Cortisol is going to be like your sleep. Is that's your wakefulness? I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff on a cortisol awakening response, but the cortisol awakening response as the sun comes up, your cortisol level should rise. 
to yeah. get you up out of bed and kickstart your circadian rhythm. Yeah. So if you can get that elevated and then ride that sort of wave when the sun goes down at night, it's when your sleep hormones would kick in as they drop below a threshold. So if you have problems with your cortisol regulation, your blood sugar is gonna be extremely hard to control and you would probably see that on your um, continuous glucose monitoring because that yeah. would give you a tip off that something is wrong there. And then you could also use the, uh, I like the uh, continuous glucose monitoring to see your response to carbohydrate too. Right. Right. So like, and I don't know it, what you think of the, uh, that one study that came out showing that different types of carbohydrates respond to people differently. Yeah. So for example, you know, gluten has had a bad rap for a while, but yeah. for some people in the study, it showed that people were able to use gluten as a carbohydrate for performance and it was able to maintain good blood sugar levels. And some people would use rice and they'd get a big spike and a big drop. Some people would use oats and have, so it, so the point of it was that it was very individualized. It was very uh, customized to the person. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't like across the board, no gluten should be eaten yeah. or it wasn't like no rice. It was sort of a varied fluctuation, right? No, uh, that's that's very very accurate because across twelve thousand people who manage uh, yes. levels on a daily basis on the platform, this is what we keep seeing that the same food, this with same raw materials, two people eating the same food have a totally different response, and yes. uh, and with the same level of activity. So there is probably microbiome interference, but there is also how they react to carbohydrates uh, individually. Uh, there is there's of course the insulin efficiency. Uh, effect as well like how insulin resistant you are and uh, what, what it leads to but yes. uh, to add to your cortisol uh, hypothesis I think uh, one of the studies I read on cortisol and insulin resistance was that cortisol does lead to uh, improper glucose response uh, because mm -hmm. it makes you temporarily insulin resistant but there is evidence that it might also make you progressively more and more insulin resistant over time yeah uh, there's something yes. called stress diabetes for example that, that over time you might just develop stress diabetes and not not really just because of the food. Yeah, and I believe that. And we see that clinically, you know, people who are chronically stressed, you see them uh, fasting insulin levels higher. Yeah. Right. Or you'll see HbA1c levels that are higher, even though that they're active and competing and eating well and all those things. I do think that the hormone component, because cortisol's job is to, you know, release glucose into the blood, bloodstream, right? So if you're chronically doing that, your regulation is going to be off. Yeah. Wow. So I do think that there's a good tie in there. Have you seen uh, where people have a varied morning responses versus night responses? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like, yeah. So typically you'd have the highest insulin sensitivity in the morning. Are you seeing that? And then the opposite at night? Yes. So essentially the effect of slowing down glucose metabolism is what we generally see. And this is, this is true for almost 75 to 80% of people, except for some mm -hmm. scenarios where we have seen that a lot of people uh, stay flat throughout and they in fact become uh, more insulin sensitive just before they sleep and uh, the glucose oh. levels actually drop if they don't fuel themselves as well as they would have. So they need some more carbohydrates just before they sleep and, oh. and to keep their glucose levels up. Uh, That's super that, interesting. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's one of the things that we wanted to study more because uh, there's very little evidence around why that would happen. And, uh, and, and we've seen close correlation with the quality of REM, the quality of deep sleep, the glucose, uh, last glucose rise timing, all those factors. 
That's the most interesting part. Like, because these are 12,000 people, we have close to like 100 million points now of glucose. Some of these studies are not even done yet. So those are the opportunities. Yes. Have you heard of something called uh, nocturnal hypoglycemia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we try to deduce that on the platform via uh, mm-hmm. your timing of glucose and essentially whether your hypoglycemia is either reactive, whether it's a Somogi effect or whether it's a, uh, it's actual nocturnal hypoglycemia because you didn't fuel as much. Uh, the closest mm-hmm. we have seen generally is because people sometimes work out very, very late, like 7, 8 p.m. And then they have their dinner. Sometimes they skip their dinner because they're doing intermittent fasting and uh, oh. they work out very late and then they turn uh, hypoglycemic. Uh, after they sleep and they wake up very, very groggy. Yes. And, and sometimes too, you can get that 2 to 4 a.m. waking because of nocturnal hypoglycemia, right? So blood sugar is low, your brain panics, wakes you up. And uh, uh, we see that in some of the elite athletes because, and my theory is because they're using all their glucose in the day. Yeah. yeah. But when they go into night, they're already depleted. Right. And now the low level triggers their brain, right? So that would yeah. be really um, interesting to see that information because then you could identify which people need carb before bed to improve deep sleep. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's really cool because it's it's very easy to call out carbs as bad or good or paint it out blanket that oh uh, you don't need carbs and just go ketogenic etc. But it's uh, it's farther away from truth as much as possible. I agree. Yeah. I, and I think you really need uh, carbohydrate for performance. You need carbohydrate, right? Yeah, no, no absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a, it's a great perspective as well. Um, for performance, there's no way you can ignore sugars and carbohydrates in your life. Yeah, Another yeah. interesting thing is, uh, so we, we recently sort of like started doing a lot of craft tests on our athletes. So start studying their insulin and glucose in combination and uh, 30 minute, 60 minute, 90 minute and 120 minutes insulin. Uh, yes. And, uh, sort of like a longish two or three hour test. It's a little painful, yeah. but it's worth doing it. What you start seeing is that uh, the um, in in very very young population, where uh, a young athlete, extremely active, no glucose response issues, extremely well regulated glucose values, might still have a very poor insulin response, and probably that's one of the early markers of insulin resistance, way way early, like maybe like ten years early into their journey in life. Wow, that's very interesting. And that, I wonder if those are the athletes that as they go through their career end up having more body fat regardless of doing the same sort of uh, routines. Because most athletes at a professional level will start doing a certain routine and when they feel really good, they'll sort of stay with that. Yeah. yeah. But then they'll say to me, you know, seven years into their career, I'm doing the same thing I was doing, but now I'm gaining body fat like crazy. So maybe it's those people who had an insulin problem in the beginning that slowly got worse. Yeah, so probably they were maintaining a lot of deficit earlier. Uh, even with elevated levels of insulin, they wouldn't see, uh, you can say, uh, body composition being on the higher side, like basically fat percentage on the higher side. But then as the insulin levels are elevated and activity levels come down, deficit goes away, but the insulin levels mm-hmm. are still elevated. You're not unlocking your fats, uh, essentially. Yes. Fat oxidation. So yeah, essentially yes. high body fats, yeah. Then it's hard to get rid of that. Yeah, I think those things play a huge role. And then you think about stress, how much stress people have connected to insulin, stress, glucose, stress from sports. And then you see probably a lot of people have problems regulating glucose because of that. Yeah, yeah, eventually. Yeah, now that's a really interesting perspective that you mentioned, doctor, because as you would know, the average age of an athlete has moved from 38 years to 44 years now and uh, globally. And people are uh, performing longer. People are sticking around for longer and they, they keep performing for more number of years. 
the longevity aspect of an athlete is increasingly becoming more and more interesting like an athlete should ideally age better and uh, perform more uh, at the same time longevity and performance are on different spectrums the age will catch up eventually as they perform but this is an amazing rabbit hole and i'm really enjoying my chat with you and i'm getting yeah. so many goosebumps along the way uh, <laughs> as i speak yeah. but this is really amazing and i think uh, uh, a lot of what i love what you just said uh, is the fact that how you're actually combining these evidence based aspects and bringing this to to the modern world um, uh, starting with athletes and then eventually to to general health for everyone absolutely yeah and you look at the the health markers over time right you know think of 70 years ago till now you know yeah. how how the increase in obesity increase in insulin resistance increase in diabetes increase in mental health these things are all connected and the body's not a separated system it's one one connected system right so if you influence one area it will help other areas too yeah so i think yeah there's something there with the obviously with the nutrition stress gut health there's these things are all tightly linked 